You're listening to an audio sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel in Oakville, Ontario. For more information, please visit our website at harvestoakville.ca. All right, John 3. Joy to the world, the Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. Notice this. On the screen it should be, let every heart prepare him room. Now notice that phrase. Let every heart prepare him room in heaven and nature sing. Let every heart prepare him room. Now isn't that the ministry of John the Baptist? The ministry of John the Baptist came that every heart would prepare room for Jesus Christ. I mean, his ministry, prepare the way of the Lord. Make room in your heart for the king. Every heart prepare to sing. Every heart prepare him room. And isn't it so interesting? The way that John the Baptist did that was his ministry was a baptism of repentance. Now, how does a ministry involving a baptism of repentance prepare hearts for the Lord? Well, think about it. To call people to be baptized in repentance, you're calling people to clean house to make room for Jesus Christ. You're calling people to take out the trash to make room for Messiah. You're calling people to stop filling their lives with the world to make room for the word, the word of God, John 1, Jesus Christ, the living word. And so this becomes the heart of our series. This is, this is our opportunity as well. Let every heart prepare him room. Let me ask us, are we preparing room for the Lord Jesus Christ? Are we preparing room? It's amazing. We're often so filled with the things of the world. Again, is there any room for Christ at all? But that's the whole point. This is why John the Baptist came. And the question we ask is, how do we prepare room for Christ in our hearts? Which is a perfect segue into our sermon title today, which is this. It's, here's how, less of us and more of him. Less of us. That's how we prepare room for Christ in our hearts. Less of us and more of him. And this is exactly what our text says and explains to us today. John 3, look at verse 25 now, verse 25. Our theme verse is in this, theme verse for our whole series is in this text too at the end. We'll see that as we go through it. John 3, verse 25. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who is with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, look, he's baptizing and all are going to him. And John answered, a person, this is brilliant, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear witness that I said I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands, notice, and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. And he finishes this section with, he must increase, but I must decrease. In our text today, we're going to see three major applications. Three wonderful applications for us to take with us and apply to our lives right now. I'm going to give them in part to you right now. We're going to see this. We're going to see proper perspective. We're going to see proper position. And we're going to see our proper plea. Perspective, position, and plea. First one is this, the proper perspective, but what is it? Here it is, all I have is grace. The proper perspective, 
of how I decrease and Christ increases is to understand that all I have is grace. Again, notice in verse 26, and they, the disciples of John, came to John the Baptist and said to him, Rabbi, he who is with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. Now what we learn here, which is so interesting, is that for a time, Jesus and John the Baptist had parallel ministries. They both had a ministry of baptism. So how do we know that? Verse 22. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing in Anon near Salem because water was plentiful there, and people were coming and being baptized. Now, it's important to note here, okay, Jesus and John both have a ministry of baptism at this time, both a ministry, again, of a baptism of repentance. But notice, we need to know this, Jesus himself did not baptize, his disciples baptized. You say, how do you know that? Chapter 4, verse 2. Although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples. Now, why is that important? Well, can you imagine if you could claim that you were baptized by Jesus? Enter strut. Hey, what's up, man? How are you doing? Pretty good. You know me? Baptized by Jesus. Were you? Were you? Like instantly there's an elitism that forms, and then instantly you could say, man, I, I should be an apostle, man. Who are you? I was baptized by Jesus. Jesus is very smart, so he did not baptize anyone actually himself. But his disciples took on this ministry, again, of seeing baptism at the same time as John. So again, notice this, Jesus and John both active in ministry, and it's at this point that the disciples of John the Baptist begin to get nervous. Now, why did John's disciples begin to get nervous? Here's why, because they were starting to feel jealousy. They were starting to feel insecurity. They were jealous of the attention that Jesus was starting to get. Notice in verse 26, the, John, uh, the disciples of John, they are offended at the ministry of Jesus, in verse 26, they don't mention Jesus' name. Notice they say, John, he who was with you and whom you bore witness. So it's kind of odd. They don't, they're referring to Jesus, but multiple times in one verse, they're communicating to him that you know, he and whom. Just odd. Notice they're afraid that Jesus is stealing John's thunder. They say, John, John, look, look, he is baptizing. They're worried. There's a sense of concern. Again, they're, they're, they're feeling insecure on John's behalf and probably their own. Notice they are jealous that Jesus is taking John's people. Notice the hyperbole in verse 26. And they say, look, look, he's baptizing. And all, all are going to him. Everyone's going, John. The whole world is going to this guy over there. Just a little note of application right here. Notice that resentment often leads to exaggeration. Notice that bitterness will often motivate us to speak in terms that aren't actually accurate. Kind of the two things they tell you to never say within marriage is never and always. You never listen to me. Never? You're always blaming me for it. Always? This is a little marriage advice, okay? Tangent, back to the text, all right, all right? But just to point out that bitterness can often lead to exaggeration. Resentment does that. Isn't it fascinating right here, though, as you see the ministry of Jesus kind of begin in this way? 
and John the Baptist, of course, his ministry, we already see here signs of denominational competition, jealousy, and rivalry. You know what's amazing about this? The church hasn't even begun yet. Like Pentecost is a ways away, but already you see people, again, kind of taking up this natural instinct. We're a competition with one another. I read a quote by J.C. Ryle on this theme this week, and I want to quote it in full here. It's on the screen for you. This is very, very relevant and perceptive. He says this, There are never lacking religions professors who care far more for the increase of their own party than for the increase of true Christianity. Hmm. Notice, and who cannot rejoice in the spread of religion if it spreads anywhere except within their own denomination. There is a generation which can see no good being done except in the ranks of its own congregations. Listen to this. And which seems ready to shut men out of heaven if they will not enter therein under their banner. Wow. Now, before we start looking across the road at others, I think we first need just to look at our own hearts and just to say, do we think that way at all? Is there any truth in that, in whether individual lives or our families or our churches or whatever it might be? But just think about that. It's, a, it's amazing how so much of the competition, rivalry, jealousy, and envy is kind of created out of this sense it's ours and only ours. Think about how much jealousy has hurt the church and quenched the Holy Spirit over and over and over again. You know, just camping on this theme just for a moment because I think it's just so critical within this text as we see this. It's always fascinating to me that in Mark's gospel, Pilate, secular leader Pilate, when he sees the Pharisees so much wanting to kill Jesus, it says in Mark's gospel that Pilate perceived it was out of envy that they delivered Jesus up to be crucified. It says it right in the text. That's amazing. Pilate knew. His en- they're just envious. They're jealous. Kill him. Kill him. Why? Because he's taking our attention away. Kill him. Fascinating. Envy. Remember, be very careful. Frederick Buchner, he said this. He said this. Envy is the consuming desire to have everybody else as unsuccessful as you are. I'll say it again. Because there's, there's so much of this that happens within our lives. Envy is the consuming desire to have everybody else as unsuccessful as you are. And then this is also very good. This quote here is also very pertinent right now. Envy is the art of counting another's blessings instead of your own. Pause, think, apply, receive, repent, pray. Envy is the art of counting another's blessings instead of your own. Isn't that so true, right? Instead of being grateful for who we are in Christ and what we have, and by the way, all of us in Christ have every spiritual blessing we could ever want. Instead, we look at what others have and start focusing on that instead of this. And this is what John's disciples were doing, okay? So John the Baptist is confronted with his disciples. Look, 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 John, look, John. Look what's happening, man. The people are leaving you. The attention's moving away from you. It's going to this guy over there we won't even name. How does John the Baptist respond? He responds in an incredible way. Verse 27, John answered. This is where we see what John is truly made of. I mean, was there a man like him in this way? Again, in all the scripture. Well, he says this. A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. Hey, just, just think of the perspective he just stated in that sentence. You can read this in two ways, okay? 
1. Jesus will be given all that he has because it's a gift from heaven because it's Christ. All that the Father gives me, I will not lose, Jesus says. Jesus could receive no one if it wasn't given from him from heaven. But on the other side of this, the double application, John is like, listen, everything I've ever gotten, which is of any good, is grace. Anything I've received is not my doing. It's the grace of heaven. It's the gift from above. Now, loved ones, let's learn right now. Pick up the perspective in this moment. There's so much perspective. And you see how powerful it is? John's disciples are like, John, John, he's hurting your ministry. John's like, my ministry? John, 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 he, he's taking your people. John's like, my people? No, no, no. Not my ministry. Not my people. A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. Is it any wonder then why John is so powerfully used? I mean, just look at how, loved ones, look at how he viewed life. Look at how he viewed life. All I have is grace. Question, how do we view life? We live in a world flooded with entitlement. Our world teaches us every day we live in a thousand different forms. You are entitled to everything and anything you could ever want. And if you don't get it, stomp your feet, complain and whine and state out loud why you think you deserve greater than what you've been given. That is not biblical perspective. That is selfish self-pity and complaining. This is the perspective entitlement that leads to grumpiness, resentment, again, self-pity and complaining. But contrast that with John the Baptist's view of life. John the Baptist looks out and he's like, grace, grace, and grace. Left, center, right, grace. It's all grace. Even this contrast, John's disciples are seeking to control and have anger. John, John, come on, man, grab hold of what's yours. Look, 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 the competition. John's response is release and gratitude. Which part would we fall in? You know, one of the powerful, powerful points of life is when you are able to truly release your grip. It's amazing how many of us were tempted each day to control, to hold, it's, it's mine. I have earned this. Um, I deserve this. Uh, I'm, I'm going to hold on to what, what I believe. I, I've worked hard. It's, 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 it's my, I hold it. And if you try to take it from me, then the anger is the result. Because that's mine. But John the Baptist is like, well, actually, it was never mine to begin with. I cannot receive even one thing unless it's given me from heaven. So therefore, I'm just... And he experiences incredible freedom and gratitude as opposed to control and anger. Where can we apply that to our lives right now? Right now. Situations, relationships, finances, future, job, family. Hurt. It's mine. And then, no, no, it's not. It's not. Hmm. Verse John 3.27 is so closely tied to 1 Corinthians 4.7. Notice Paul says, For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? Grace. If then you received it, grace, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? If it was a gift, why are you boasting like you earned it? It was given to you. 
How can you boast of something that was grace in the first place? It wasn't our doing. It's the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's like, it's like trying to boast in the color of your eyes. You didn't do anything. You just received that. You had no choice. It's grace. Take a moment. Think about it. The book of James says every good and perfect gift comes down from heaven above. Every good and perfect gift. Again, a person cannot receive even one thing unless given him from heaven. What a perspective. Think of, you take this perspective and you apply it to life then. Think about it. Think about it. You wake up in the morning. The heat comes on. Grace. Hey, it's getting cold outside. That's grace. You open the fridge and there's something in there. Grace. Honey, it's a miracle. There's grace in the fridge. Grace. That's what it is. It's grace. You have clothes to put on in the midst of uh, December weather. It's grace. Just, it's, it's grace. You have family and friends that care for you, love you, any people in your life. It's just, what is that grace? It's, it's all grace. There's, there's, there's any money in the bank at all. Grace. Let alone your salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ that you can wake up and be here today and know that you are a child of God. At the end of the day, you are, you are destined for glory. What is that? It's grace. It's just grace everywhere. Grace, 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 grace. Perspective. All that I have is grace. I cannot receive even one thing of any good unless it is given to me, to us, from heaven. Then think about this. Any part in serving Christ and helping others know Jesus Christ that they might be saved from death and life. Grace. Unbelievable grace. Any ministry at all for Jesus Christ. Grace. And listen. In the context of our passage, can you see then, when you have this perspective, grace, 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 how much this fights against jealousy and envy, which is killing so many of us? How come I don't have, how, you're, all you see is grace, you're just like, you're not even noticing what other people have, because you're so obsessed with what you've been given by the grace of God. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Aren't you jealous? Jealous of what? I got it all. You're not competing and comparing because you just see the Lord Jesus Christ. This is what John's doing. John's like, man, I cannot believe. It's incredible. I cannot receive one thing that's given to me from heaven. The perspective of the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ changes his life. And even sets him apart from his own disciples. Perspective. It's powerful. Watch, watch. Proper perspective, we decrease. Christ increases, joy enters our life. See that? Improper perspective, we increase, Christ decreases, and then we just get bitter and angry about everything. Point number two, from perspective to position. The proper position then is what? My joy is complete in Christ. My joy is complete in Christ. And look now at verse 28. Look at John. He continues on his role of perspective and now his position. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ. But I have been sent before him. The bride or the one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him, notice, rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. Just beautiful, beautiful words here. Notice right away, John the Baptist is crystal clear that he is not the Christ. He reminds his disciples of this. I told you, man, I'm not the Christ. I'm a voice crying in the wilderness. But notice this also, loved ones, this does not diminish 
God's purpose for his life. He says, I told you I'm not the Christ, but I have been sent by God. That's a beautiful theological application for us right now, okay? We understand, loved ones, and you make sure you know this, that we are not Jesus, all right? Did you know that? Yes? Good, good. Yeah, okay, we're, we're, we are not Jesus, right? We are obviously not the Christ, right? But the purpose of our lives is we've been saved by Christ, if we've been our sins forgiven by faith, by grace through faith, if we're alive in Jesus Christ, we are not Jesus. We have been saved by Jesus, and now we get to tell of Jesus. Incredible. So there's one Christ, but we are saved, transformed by Christ to tell of Christ. What, a, what an incredible privilege. What an incredible purpose. At the end of time, that we could be used, like think about this, we could be used by God to see others hear the message of the gospel, to be forever saved from death and hell and the grip of Satan? Is there any greater position or privilege on earth? There isn't. There's one Jesus, but we are commissioned to tell others of this one Jesus that they might be saved by the message of Jesus. Astounding. John then tells a small parable. His parable includes a bride, a bridegroom, and a friend. The friend is our equivalent of a best man. Now, the New Testament is rich with imagery of the church being the bride of Christ and Christ being the bridegroom, of course. Now, when John said this, was he looking forward? Did, did he understand what was coming in the New Testament biblical imagery of, of bride and bridegroom, of church and Christ? We can't be sure. But the Old Testament also was rich in imagery of this type of language. Was John drawing from that? Probably. One thing's for sure. Practically, he was speaking of a Judean wedding. And just like our weddings, a Judean wedding would have a bride, a bridegroom, and a friend or a best man. Now, he compares himself with the best man. Amazing. Just think what the best man is responsible for within a wedding, a best man of integrity. It's the best man who finds the greatest joy that the wedding goes without a hitch. It's the best man who does whatever he can to see the bridegroom ready to receive his bride. It's the best man when he has such love for the bridegroom as he sees the bride coming down the aisle and he connects the two together as they're coming in. Tears well up in his eyes because he's so overwhelmed at the joy that is found between these two that were destined to be together and his joy is found to be complete in the union of the bride and the bridegroom. That's who the best man is supposed to be. His joy is outside of himself. His joy is within the relationship that is before him that he has been called to support and help to bring together. No proper best man would ever want anything different. But as one commentator said, listen to this, and we're very wise to listen. He says, put yourselves in John's shoes and just in the temptation of the flesh. It's not easy to see another's influence growing at the expense of one's own. It's even less easy to rejoice at the sight. How do we do when all of a sudden we find ourselves in the background where we used to be in the foreground? How do we do? John's like, he's like, I couldn't be more happier. I couldn't be more filled with joy. My joy is complete. The joy of complete that is found in the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, look what he says at the end of verse 29. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. 
And notice again, notice in verse 29, what is he rejoicing in? The best man, the friend, when he stands and hears him, he, he hears what? He hears the voice. And it says, he rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Just the voice of Christ. John, his joy is fulfilled at the hearing of the arrival and the coming of Messiah, Jesus Christ. Let's do a little word study of voice in the Gospel of John. I think it's very interesting. Notice this. So this is how John described himself. I am the voice. So, so, so John is a voice. He's, he's a voice for Christ. I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord. And then our verse here now. Next verse. Our verse we're looking at today, right? He says he rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. The one voice crying out and can't wait to hear the voice of the Son of God. Next verse now. In John 10, Jesus says this, my sheep hear my voice. See, when you truly hear the voice of Christ, I know them, he says, and they follow me. When we hear the voice of Christ, just like John saying, I rejoice at his voice, his voice, I follow my whole life. And Jesus says, when those truly hear my voice, I know them and they follow me. When you really, really hear the voice of Christ, man, you're not playing church. You're not half in, half out. You, you are going where Christ is going. Uh, next verse. Look at this. Jesus, when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus! Come on, I mean, what a voice. Amen, church? Now, the preacher joke goes, the reason he said Lazarus, if he just said, come out, then everyone would have been raised from the dead, right? Right? But he has to be specific because his voice is so powerful and so glorious. Lazarus, come out. And Lazarus is raised from the dead by the mention of the word. And then one more verse. There's a bunch of these in John, but John 18. Jesus before Pilate, he says, everyone, no, no, who's this for today? Everyone who is of the truth. Think, think, think. Maybe pray, pray, pray. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Are you of the truth? Because if we are, we listen to the voice, the voice of Jesus. So the best man, he hears the bridegroom's voice. The bridegroom is here to receive his bride. The joy of John the Baptist is now complete. Now notice, his whole life, listen, and his whole joy was this, that the people of God receive the Son of God. His whole joy, that God's people would know God's Son, and they come together, he's like, yes! Yes, I'm done! That's it, my whole life is for these to come together, prepare the way of the Lord. Jesus is here, Yes! People are finding salvation, my joy. God make us like that, huh? Our greatest joy is seeing people saved. Our greatest joy is serving others in the cause of Jesus Christ. God help us. I know that we're far from that at times. But this is where we're being called to that right now again. God, what does it mean that my greatest joy is seeing the lost found and, and, and weeping over those who don't know the Lord Jesus Christ? John's ministry is preparing people for the first coming of Christ. We are called to prepare people for the second coming of Christ. As we've heard in the series, this is to be our joy. Look at this verse from Thessalonians. 
Look what Paul says about joy and where it's rooted. He says, for what is our joy, hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Now, look at what Paul's saying there, okay? He said, okay, what are we hoping in? What's our joy? What's our crown? What's our reason for boasting when Jesus Christ appears? I mean, think about it. Jesus Christ appears, and what are we feeling? Jesus Christ appears, what are we thinking? Jesus Christ appears, what are we saying? And Paul says, when Jesus Christ appears, our hope, our joy, our crown, our boasting, notice, for you are our glory. Is it not you? For you are our glory and our joy. Paul says, my joy of boasting before Christ when he appears is that you are alive in Jesus Christ. It's incredible. Like his whole life, like John the Baptist, Paul, they got something in common here. Yes, God's people, God's son. Yes, my joy. Yes, my glory. God, help us. God, fill us with that burden. And you just know deep down he's right. You know he's right. You know that's where joy is found. In Jesus. In seeing others come to Jesus. Just this past week, multiple stories of people, supernatural stories of people being saved by the gospel of Jesus Christ through this place. And just to see, again, to, to know the joy of what it means. Someone has just been rescued from eternal death. Someone has just now been reconciled to the living God. Another life, Jesus Christ is building his church, and another individual is no longer going to be under the bondage of their sin and the condemnation of that and spend an eternity separated from God, but now they are children of God, and they can sing to God and love Jesus Christ. I mean, what is, what is more important than that? God, help us. That's why it's so good to have perspective and recognize our position that our joy is found in Christ. I want to show you a picture of two people you saw just over a month ago, Laura McKay and Jim McDougall, two of our saints who passed away again just over a month ago, grieving their loss and yet celebrating their joy now in Jesus Christ. The reason I show them to you again, because just this past week, both of their spouses also passed away. Next picture. I mean, within days again, within days, Laura and Jim pass away, and then you have Art McKay this past week, and then Lois McDougall, loved saints in our church, like saints, saints, they weren't perfect, but they worshiped the one who was, and bless, bless Art. Past many years coming to church with his walker, just, I mean, he, he had such a wonderful sense of humor, a light in his eyes, such an encouragement just loved you. you know what's amazing? When you get to this stage of life, there's a bunch of things you're not worried about anymore. Amen? There's a bunch of things you're not going to complain about anymore because you got so much perspective flowing through your spiritual veins. You're just like, I'm not going to bother with that, man. I'm focusing on that, which is most important. Lois McDougall. Wow. For anyone who knew Lois, she was just tremendous. I mean, just, she's a spiritual bulldog, you know? strong woman, a beautiful woman. She meant all of these, meant so much to me. I just think you are a joy in our glory to finish the race, to finish the race. All of them struggled in their own way, right? The ups and the downs, the pains of life, the battles, the trials, the perseverance, the encouragement, the endurance, though. And now think, and now think, but loved ones, the sorrows, the sorrows in our church continue, Right? This past week, next picture, Mark Jones went home to be with the Lord. Mark in his early 60s, he was a greeter in our church for many years. He was one of the original four couples when this church began, one of the original four couples. 
He struggled with health issues for so many years. He had MS, and it led to different complications, and eventually it put him in the hospital a number of weeks ago, and the complications that occurred, and his body started to break down, and we were praying so much that he would be healed and able to be sustained. They thought he would be, but all of a sudden it took a turn, and within, I remember seeing him in the hospital just over a week ago, and be able to pray with him and look at him, and the pain started to set in, and a week later, he's gone. Maybe you remember Mark pray for his incredible wife, Jennifer, and their three kids, and the grief they have to go through right now and all that's there. And Mark is our joy and our glory. He is to me. What's happening right now? Perspective's happening. Um, position is happening as well. Just consider this right now, that the bride, in this case, is of the saints we just put in front of you. The bride is now meeting the bridegroom. This is the reality. Now, someone said to me this week, again, about situations like this, they said, well, you know what? This Christmas, they're celebrating this Christmas with Jesus himself. Hmm. That's, that's awesome. Kind of jealous, have to admit you imagine sitting down with Christmas with Jesus? That's what they're doing. Loved ones consider their joy is now complete. It's complete. Everything they've ever wanted, desired, and lived for, everything, everything they've ever hoped to be is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Why? Because Jesus is joy. Jesus is joy. Consider Christmas. Consider the joy of Christmas. Think about it. The angels, good news of great joy. The wise men, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy, the text says. The shepherds, they returned and glorifying and praising God. Mary, my soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. Simeon holding Christ. Now I can die. John the Baptist, in the womb, in the womb, leaping for joy at the sound of Mary's voice, who is carrying Jesus Christ within her womb. Consider Every ounce of Christmas joy, every ounce of joy related to Christmas in Scripture is 100% found in Jesus Christ. Every ounce of Christmas joy is rooted in Jesus Christ. Loved ones, this is because Jesus is joy. He's perfect joy. Do not be fooled by the world. Jesus equals joy. Many of us right now are we're tempted to think, man, if I can just get some, just get some sleep. Sleep is the answer. We're tempted to think, if I can just get some rest, it's good, it's good. But, 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 but sleep is the answer. No, no, incorrect. Jesus is the answer. If I, if I can just have that Christmas bonus, that is the answer. No, incorrect. Jesus is the answer. If, if I can just, kids... If I can just get to the gifts of Christmas, I just, I just want the presents. Adults, if I can just have those gifts for Christmas, right? No, 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 no. The gifts aren't the answer. The gift of Christmas, Jesus Christ, he's the answer. Christmas break, Christmas break. Oh, just make it a Christmas break. That's the answer. Ultimately, no, it's not. Jesus is the answer said one of my children this week and we're looking forward to a few things that are coming up and stuff and just 
how to remind one of my children. I said, well, you know that that's not the answer. You know that Jesus is the answer, right? And that looks at me strangely sometimes, you know. We were talking about my wife, Jill, a couple weeks ago, and just even my own temptations to think, if I can just get here, just do this, and just had to say it loud and say to her, and just say, you know what, I'm tempted to think that this is the answer, but the reality is Jesus is the answer, and you know, so you can feel sorry for my family. They have to put up with a lot when it comes to me, all right? All these conversations of hearing dad kind of process his own mind and heart and all that kind of stuff too, but, but it feels good to say it because it's so true and so right, isn't it? Isn't it? Fixing your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Look to him. Look to Jesus. Stare in the manger. Stare at the child sent for you. Recall the gospel. This Jesus. Jesus is joy. John the Baptist totally got this. And notice he's like, man, I just hear his voice. My joy is complete. He's here. He's here. The proper perspective. All I have is grace, the proper position. My joy is complete in Christ. And finally, the proper plea. What's the result of this? Well, now we plea. What's our plea? He must increase, I must decrease. That's verse 30, John 3.30. The theme verse for this entire series right here. John says that. He must increase, I must decrease. Notice the word must there. Why is that important? It's... It's said with great strength in the original. There's no wiggle room. This must happen. This is the certainty of God's will. This is the gospel lived out, right? As commentators have pointed out, this is the third must in John 3. The first must occurs in John 3, 7. It's the must for the sinner. Notice, uh, you must be born again. Sinner, you must be born again. Then notice the must for the Savior, John 3, 14. So the Son of Man must be lifted up. And then finally the must for the sinner, for the Savior, and the saint now, the must for the saint, John 3, 30. He must increase. I must decrease. Consider that John the Baptist was like a star in the sky. I think what happens when the stars are shining in the sky, but the sun starts to rise. As the sun starts to rise, very quickly the stars start to fade. And as the sun comes up, the stars disappear altogether. John the Baptist was a star shining in the sky, but then the sun rose, S-U-N rose, and then the sun, S-O-N, the Son of God, became the light that caused any other star to disappear completely, and John couldn't be more thrilled. Yes. Yes, I'm fading. I'm fading off into oblivion because we're making room for the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, how do we do? How do we do when that's our situation? That one place we're front and center and we're hopefully with pure motivations and we're there and we're serving the Lord, but all of a sudden someone else kind of steps in front as they probably should and then we're placed again in the background are we like hey what are you doing get out of my way this is this is my ministry this is this is this is my time this is my thing or or do we see it for the glory and cause of Christ and we put ourselves in the background and the supernatural ability to rejoice that we are decreasing that Jesus Christ is increasing now that is such a powerful way to live that is so rare in our day it's John the Baptist though 
to truly have eyes to see and to rejoice. If Jesus Christ is increasing, oh Lord, the joy that is found within our hearts. Do you know what's so interesting too? Jesus said of John the Baptist, and we should come to this next week, but Jesus said that there's been no one greater born of woman than John the Baptist. Think about what that says about the value system of Jesus. The value system of how Jesus views us. There's no one greater born of woman, of woman than John the Baptist. And his whole mantra for his whole life was, I rejoice in becoming less as Jesus Christ becomes more. No one greater than John the Baptist. Hmm. It tells you a lot about the value system of our Savior. So let's end here today with this, okay? There's a lot of deep spiritual talk going on. It's incredibly important, incredibly valuable, I pray, incredibly encouraging as well. But here's the question, okay, okay, so how do I decrease? Exactly, Robbie. How do I see this start to take root practically within my life? A few things I jotted down right here, okay? You want Jesus to increase and you must decrease, number one. Number one, this. Offer thanksgiving and praise because it's so powerful. Okay, so this is not cliche, loved ones. This is incredibly powerful way to live. Deuteronomy 8, the warning is, listen, when you're blessed and God blesses you, do not forget where you came from. Do not take for granted. Do not forget that God is the one who gave you all these gifts. Don't become proud. Don't become arrogant after you have been blessed and somehow think it's your strength or, or your, your might that brought this. No, 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 no. Never forget the reality of who we were before Christ. What happens here? Well, you begin to offer thanksgiving and you praise Jesus Christ. Right? So you start to look at your life. You start with the reality, no matter how bad life is for you right now or me or we think it is, all of us can choose, if we're saved in Christ, to open our Bibles to the reality of the gospel and list a thousand different things that pertain to our reality in Jesus Christ now that are the most important things we could ever have received and you start to say them out loud, Lord Jesus Christ, Father, thank you that, man, I remember I was so dead. I'm alive right now. I cannot lose. I'm headed to heaven. I will never be lost. I have been redeemed every sin. I mean, do you ever, ever think about the sins that you used to commit or the sins that you commit even today? And you think about the horrific nature. And then you're just like, but the gospel, it's almost, it's almost, it's almost too good to be true, but it is. And what happens? Well, then your mindset goes off of self and onto Christ and you begin to praise the one who is worthy. And in that moment, you are literally out loud thanks, being thankful and praising God. You start to decrease and Christ starts to increase automatically in that moment. That's what happens. I mean, try it. A sincere heart, you, you continue to do off of me on Christ and you, and you become less and Christ becomes more because all the glory is going to Christ. Number two, Preach the gospel to yourself. We just did that even right now a little bit. 1 Timothy 1, Paul says, but I remember when God's mercy came upon my life, I was the chief of sinners. How is it possible that I'm alive in Jesus, he's saying. In that moment, Paul's like, I'm the worst of the worst, decrease. Christ is the best of the best, perfect, increase. See what happens there? So again, you, you, you preach, I, I recommend, out loud to yourself. You say, people think I'm weird. Weird for Jesus, man. Out loud, rehearse the gospel. 
Remind yourself of what is true. It's just true. And as we do that, we become less Jesus Christ, becomes more perspective, position, joy. Thirdly, put others first. Serve. Amen. Consider others more significant than yourselves. Why? This is the heart of following Christ, washing other people's feet. And Jesus grabbed a towel, put it around his waist, stepped down, and started began to wash his disciples' feet. And Peter's like, no way, man. You're never doing that to me. Jesus like, Peter, you better let me do this, man. This is really important. I'm setting an example for all of you for the rest of time. We are to become less. We are, we are called to serve. I love starting many days and trying to intentionally think about this and say, Lord, would you give me specific opportunities by your Holy Spirit to serve, to serve others, big, small, medium, doesn't matter. Think about this within your immediate context. Think about this within the church. Serving others, washing people's feet, serving the Lord Jesus Christ, placing ourselves in a place of servanthood, which is so, so much of the gospel. It's how we, de- if we're just walking around, everyone wants to serve us, well, obviously that's not gonna go great. Because if we're in serving us, we're just increasing. Christ is decreasing in our own mind. And then our joy leaves us. Fourthly, don't compare. Because think about it. Every time we compare, we're elevating ourselves. See, this is why jealousy and envy are so killer, as we heard today, right? Well, how come I don't? How come, I want to be like, I want to have what they have. It's just, it's, just, it's just like Jesus is being put down. We're being put up, whatever. And we forget all that we've been given, again, from heaven, every good and perfect gift, everything we've received. Think about that. Think of how much jealousy, competition, envy, rivalry, selfish ambition kills the Spirit of God within our lives. I pause because I just want us to think this through. No need to rush. Lastly, surrender with prayer. Again, this is not a cliche. That is absolutely awesome theological truth. Um, it's freedom, right? It's, it's the clenched fist to the open hands. And the situations we face in life right now, and just to say, Lord, am I holding on trying to manipulate control? Or God, by prayer and surrender, I'm going to open my hands to you and say, Lord, it's yours. Your will be done. He must increase, I must decrease. The freedom that comes from the heart that truly gets to that place. It's so powerful. And we end our whole message with a quote from Martin Luther. Here it is, so good. God created the world out of nothing. So as long as we are nothing, he can make something out of us. Look, look. God created the world out of nothing. So as long as we are nothing, unless a seed falls to the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. So he can make something out of us. Amen, church? It's hard. It's hard. But it's so right. And that's where joy is found. Let's pray. Let's pray. Father, it is hard because our flesh wants to do anything but respond in obedience to this message. Our flesh wants to do anything. Satan wants us to do anything but be obedient to John 3, 30. But the Holy Spirit in us says it's right. It's beautiful. It's wonderful. 
the Holy Spirit in us says, it's the path to freedom and joy and light and love. The Holy Spirit says, this is when lives are used for the glory of Jesus Christ. So Lord, I pray even right now, we would take our voices and we would say, be lifted higher. Be lifted higher. Yes, Lord, for all you've done. Your name be louder. Louder, Lord, than our own. You be exalted. You be praised. I pray even now, give us joy as we begin again the process of decreasing that Jesus might increase. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.